I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. to the Mad Max Minute. We'll try spinning. That's a good trick in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 107, which begins with Nux asking Capable to witness him, and it ends with Jillian driving the Gigahorse back to the Citadel. With us once again is our resident expert on trench runs. It's comic book Alex Robinson from the Star Wars Minute. Hello there. Ah, General Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Uh, good to have you back here on a Wednesday as we observe the climactic scene involving the war rig, this thing that we've been hanging out with for the last ugh, hour and a half and then some. We've really gotten used to the old girl. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to have the setting of the movie be destroyed. Yeah. I mean, it's unusual enough to have the setting of a movie in a vehicle. And then at the very end, when you want the team to be triumphant, but you want them to take the rig with them because the rig is a character and she doesn't get to go. Like, can you imagine a Star Wars where the Millennium Falcon is legitimately destroyed? Exactly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The next one. You you think so? uh, It wouldn't surprise me. It's a 50-50 shot at this point. Sort of a Game of Thrones, death pool sort of situation? Yeah, I'm thinking more like a uh, Star Trek 3 kind of a thing, where they have to sacrifice the ship to, 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 to save the day or something. Oh, now there is a trope that has been played and overplayed, it feels like, especially with the new J.J. Abrams movies, where they just destroy the Enterprise in, like, every Star Trek movie. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. exactly what happens in this minute. <laughs> Is they sacrifice the beloved ship to save everybody else. Mm-hmm. No one ever said George Miller was free from tropes. Yeah. I mean, this is roughly what happened at the end of Road Warrior. They did end up rolling that rig. Uh-huh. Although I would argue that Max didn't intentionally roll that rig as much as we all might think. I think him going head into the Lord Humongous, and then suddenly there's a curve in the road. If it had been more straightaway, I think Max might have been able to maintain it. We'll never know. I guess there's only so much you can do in this world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point, I don't think there's really anything Nux can do. But what he does do is he points through the windshield at Capable, and he essentially whispers, witness me. And I love this moment specifically because it's Nux quietly telling Capable to observe his sacrifice. It's not loud and showy like we had earlier in the movie with Morsov and the war boys on the war rig. Ah, witness me! And then he jumps through the air and explodes. It's more subtle than that. Tender. Nux has gotten to a point where he's not doing this out of blind devotion to a god king. He's not doing this because he's been raised to do it. He's legitimately and of his own free will sacrificing himself for someone that really understood him. Or at least 
took the opportunity to learn about him, to listen to him and give him the time of day and not just dismiss him out of hand because he's painted up like a war boy. Yeah. You pointed out the comparison between Morsov and Slit, their cries of witness me, and Nux has done it too. Mm -hmm. They want other people around them to witness their glorious death so that they can go to Valhalla. And this is like the exact opposite of what Nux is doing now. His witness me, first of all, is just for himself. Nobody else can hear him. And it's his way of saying goodbye to Capable, I think. And also, he doesn't want to be witnessed so that he can go to Valhalla. He just wants to be remembered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's made a connection with another human. Yes. Something he'd never done before. This witness me kind of encapsulates his character arc. Mm -hmm. Because when he started out, the last thing he wanted to do, the one thing that he was most afraid of was dying soft and losing out on the perceived glory that is given to war boys that die in the surface of the Immortan. And here he's doing something as heroic as he originally wanted to do, but he's doing it for a different reason. And I think the reasoning behind it is the biggest change between beginning of the movie, end of the movie. At the beginning of the movie, he wanted to die for Joe. Here he's dying, I'd say, partly for Capable and the wives, but I think he's also doing this for himself. I think also another part of it is that he genuinely doesn't have a choice. He's trapped. Mm -hmm. He's not willingly sacrificing himself. He's going to die anyways. So he might as well do the thing that he was going to do. Stick to the plan. Stick to the plan, even if it means you're still in the cab. And I really like how Capable reacts to this witness me pointing thing. She extends her hand and it's open and she lets her fingers curl in as if she's somehow capturing Nux's memory so that she can hold on to it. It's very reminiscent of what the Vuvalini do when one of their number die. They reach out into the air and they grab at the air and they bring it down to their heart. I like that it's not exactly what the Vuvalini do. She's not copying them. Mm -hmm. She's taking the concept and adapting it to how she feels. She made it her own. One thing I really enjoy about this movie and uh, another way I think it's, as I said last time, superior to The Force Awakens, or just, uh, I guess, more specifically the Star Wars prequels. It's One thing I really like about it is that it has a huge and like supporting cast of minor people who we also follow in addition to the main characters. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really uh, an overlooked part of a lot of movies. I think a lot of movies focus on like, you know, three characters and then there'll be like two supporting characters and that's it. But I think by having such a deep bench, it really gives you a lot of, uh, you know, a lot more, um, uh, you know, it's a richer tapestry because of that. I think perfect case in point, jumping ahead a little bit, the Doof Warrior. At the crash, most of the way through this minute, the Doof Wagon rear-ends the rig, which is exactly what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to create this big chaos. But we never actually see the Doof Warrior. He's no longer on it. Or he is, and he just goes down immediately and not up and out yeah. with the bungees. But... I noticed when I saw that it was the Doof Wagon that rear-ended the rig, I was like, oh no, what happened to the Doof Warrior? I looked for him. <laughs> I looked really hard for him, and I could not find him. 
You would think wearing bright red underoos that he'd be really easy to spot. Yeah, you'd think so. Are you guys talking about the guy with the guitar? Absolutely. I think, don't you see him laying uh, on it, on the truck before one of them uh, blows up or something? I thought I could see him. The last time I could find him, I think wasn't even in this minute. The last time I could see him was sometime in Monday's minute. And I couldn't find him in or around the crash. Mm -hmm. But that certainly doesn't mean he wasn't there. Right. They're very deliberate with their angles in this minute. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One thing I did for this minute was I went on YouTube and looked up videos of trucks flipping over and could not find one along these lines where it totally flips over almost doing a a 360 degree turn. Most of them just go over once and then stop. But uh, it makes for some fun viewing. It does. Yeah, I was really wondering about the flip, the physics of this flip. Because mm-hmm. we see Nux turn the wheel, and he jerks it pretty hard and quick. But <laughs> the rig like seems to just rise straight up off the ground almost and into the air in order to get the clearance to do the actual flipping. I mean, it looks great. It really does. It's gorgeous. I'm just not so sure about it. I'm not sure if they're supposed to be rocks along the side of the canyon that the war rig hits and hitting the rocks act like a natural ramp that help it roll it would have to be a ramp i don't see any other way in universe for it to happen plus it has that cow catcher on the front so if it that would kind of if it did hit the rocks then it would kind of you know push it aside a bit wouldn't it yeah or at least dig into the side of them yeah and that's even if nux could see the rocks because as we mentioned on monday Rictus is out there on the hood of the war rig, and there are flames pouring out of that second engine. It's not an ideal visibility situation for Nux. It's kind of like driving in a bad storm, where that storm is fire and also a seven-foot-tall guy trying to smash you in the face with an engine. It's possible also that he wasn't trying to flip it, that he was just trying to slam it into the side, and the flip just happened to be like a a cool bonus action. Because the tanker wasn't as secure as it normally is. I think in my research, I found that there are eight bolts that hold the fifth wheel onto a rig that attach it to the tanker, and they had removed all but three. Do you think they successfully removed all but three? I know that was the instruction. Oh, that's a good idea. But did it actually happen? Max left Antoinette and she was working at it, but then the Mack truck came, ripped the part of the war rig right off, and it took Antoinette completely out. Yeah. I think it's safe to assume that she got at least most of them because the two separate pretty easy during the flip. Uh, I have an update. You can see the guitar guy in minute 106 on the truck. Towards the end of 106... There's a shot of the truck when he, when he hits the gas and he starts speeding up. You can see the, the other truck. I forget what, what it was called. Goonmobile or something. Oh, the doof wagon. The doof wagon. You can see that. And then you can see the guy with the red uh, pajamas on the front of the truck. <laughs> okay. So mere seconds before the doof wagon is destroyed, the doof warrior is on it. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that he's dead now. However, he got dead. You know, doesn't really matter. Yeah. Surely he must be dead by now. (laughs) (laughs) Better send someone to check on that. (laughs) Unfortunately, there are no droids in the Mad Max universe. I say unfortunately, there are people that are going to be like, oh, yeah, no droids. Good. Good thing. No droids. 
<laughs> we don't serve their kind here. You don't know. Could we, other parts of the planet could still be uh, could still be in good shape. <laughs> so Rictus seems to forget about the whole smash knucks in the face with an engine because as they're nearing the pass, he still has this engine block above his head, and he turns around and he shouts out his own name as the Giga Horse speeds towards the pass, and then Nux flips it. Is this just Rictus's final death rattle? Like, he knows that there's nothing he can do to stop this, so he's just gonna... I think it's his version of Witness Me. Okay. Like, he doesn't need Joe to witness him, because he's Rictus. He is now, in the absence of Immortan Joe, the new God King. I suppose so. Corpus might argue with that. You think he thought it through that much? (laughs) (laughs) I kind of equate it to the similar thing to when Angherit's baby was stillborn. He was a baby brother, perfect in every way, and Rictus called it out to everybody. He wanted everybody to know. Same way here, he wants everybody to know, to see him. Mm. So this crash, we already mentioned that it's a little fantastic that it rolls the way it does. There is a lovely behind-the-scenes featurette on the Blu-ray for Mad Max Fury Road. The way this stunt was done, first and foremost, it was done practically. The rig rolling to the side, flying up into the air, sliding along the ground, all of that was 100% real. And what they did is they put the designated war rig stunt driver, Lee Adamson, in a fireproof suit with a helmet and everything like that. And they gave him a driving rig on the right side of the cab and they put a Nux dummy on the left side of the cab because as you see the truck flipping you can see Nux white head popping out of the moonroof like he's in there and so what Adamson did is he sped towards these large uprights that represented the two sides of the arc that they're driving through and when the time was right he hit a big button next to the steering wheel and that launched two massive nitrogen piston cannons, one on the rig itself, one on the tanker. And it launched the entire thing up into the air and over, and it went over onto its side and it was sliding along the ground. And as part of this featurette, you can see George Miller and he's in his little director's tent and he's watching the monitors and he sees the Nux dummy popping out of the moonroof and he gets really concerned that... It's not the next dummy that it's actually Lee Adamson. Yikes. And so the stunt finishes and he's like, did he pop out the top? Is he okay? (laughs) (laughs) They ran over there because they didn't do one crash right after the other like it is in the movie. They crashed the war rig and then they let Lee get out of the war rig before they smashed the doof wagon into it. But... They went over there with the jaws of life and they cut him out and he was absolutely fine. Sheesh. It's a living. George Miller is so lucky. (laughs) There's so many times over the course of these four movies that somebody should have died. The law of averages says someone should have died during the making of this. (laughs) But I love his concern in the featurette. He's like on his feet, hanging on every word out of the radio, waiting to hear that Lee is okay because He legitimately thought the dummy was his stunt actor. But no, it was just the Nux dummy that had its top layer of scalp. Well, I say scalp. It was a dummy. The top layer of its head was completely scraped off by the ground. 
Mm -hmm. because of the way it flipped over. So in the movie, as I mentioned, the doof wagon almost immediately slams into the back of the war rig because they were tailgating pretty hard. Now, this was a separate shot. The doof wagon was driven by Guy Norris, who did the initial interceptor flip at the beginning of the movie. And the way that they made it so that all of the little pieces fly off is they put explosive squibs on each of the smaller instruments and speakers at the top of the doof wagon. So that way, when it hit the war rig, all of those things detached and started flying towards the camera. And when they shot this angle of all the things coming off, they shot it at 300 frames per second on one of those phantom cameras. So that way, everything was super slow motion so they could play with the speed that it plays back at with still being in very crisp detail. Crisp detail is right. These shots of the crashes, they're stunning. They're so beautiful. Yeah. And it's such a dramatic end to this chase. I love that it's abrupt and it throws first the guitar and then the steering wheel like right in your face. Yeah, that was awesome. As awesome as it is, I can't help but whinge at just how CG the guitar and the steering wheel is, but I feel like the rest of the crash makes up for it. You can allow the guitar springing forward and being perfectly centered and then bouncing back for the steering wheel to come through. Like, you can say, okay, I'll allow it, because what we just watched was so amazing. Oh, I also just think that shot is just so it's just so over the top that I'm willing to cut them some slack in terms yeah. of its phoniness. But, you know, like <laughs> just the sheer like like, I don't know, nerve of putting that shot in there just because it's so like, uh, you know, self-consciously presentational. I just, you know, it's fantastic. It is. I do feel like the guitar didn't really earn its spot in this scene. Really? Yeah. So we have these two objects that come right in your face, the guitar and the steering wheel. The steering wheel has been repeated imagery throughout the movie, different steering wheels meaning something to different characters. The steering wheel is an important object. The guitar is cool, I guess. It's a flamethrowing guitar. That's kind of it. Maybe because it immediately evokes that guy with the red pajamas who we all loved, it's it's just kind of a way of showing you that he survived because he would never be separated from his guitar. So clearly he's still alive. So don't worry. He's still alive in spirit somewhere in the guitar. <laughs> I definitely see where you're coming from. What else would you have put instead of the guitar? Nothing. I wouldn't have put anything. I think it would have been more aesthetically pleasing to just have the steering wheel coming at your face. Because mm -hmm. the steering wheel, this specific one, is the wheel that was taken from the bullet farmer and gifted from Max to Nux as recognition of, here you go, war boy, I trust you with this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Steering wheels have been very important the whole time throughout the movie. So I think it should have been just the steering wheel. One last instance of Nux proving himself to Max. He was able to finish the mission to come through in the end. And this is one last thing. Nux giving the wheel back to Max. Right. You gave me the steering wheel and look what I did with it. Yeah. And it's also a really cool transition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this transition kind of unique? 
It is an eight second black screen. That is long. It's very long. It's a long time. A long time. It feels like it eats up a lot of this minute. It really does. It is just about 13% of this minute. (laughs) That's a lot of time to devote to a black screen. Yeah. I actually like it, though, because this was the climax of the chase. The movie's not over yet, but we are in the phase of the movie where it's like the third act has ended and we're into this little mini fourth act. Yeah. To reference a movie that had far too many of these dips, uh-huh. this is like in Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, <laughs> yeah, where it dips to black and then we come in on the epilogue. Do you think the movie technically could have ended here at this black screen? No. I don't think it would have been satisfying. You need to know what happened to all the characters. Yeah. Yeah. I think if George Miller wanted to be cruel and <laughs> leave it up to us and our imaginations to decide what happened when they got back to the Citadel. I suppose he could have, but I do not think it would have been well-received. Part of me thinks that if you wanted to end the movie on this black screen, you would have to do a mid-credit, where-are-they-now situation, very akin to Animal House. Oh, that's so gross. (laughs) Where it shows freeze frames of the different characters, like... Max went on to do this, and Furiosa went off to do this, and the Dag became governor and then got arrested for embezzling money or something like that. I like it. <laughs> I think if George Miller wanted to pull off an abrupt ending like this, he would have had to kill off Furiosa. Oh, it's a bold strategy. Because the biggest thing that is left to happen isn't so much them returning to the Citadel. We know the Citadel is undefended. We know that the biggest players are dead. So the wives are pretty much free and clear to just waltz right in. We know that. That was part of the plan. So the biggest question left is the status of Furiosa. So if she was already solidly dead, I think he could have gotten away with it. I would say that might, uh, I would agree with that. They handled it. uh, I think they would have to, I think they would have to lean a little bit more to let you know what was going to happen to the, because you don't know if the, 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 if those ladies went walking in, they could have easily just been captured by someone else you know and it's not like they were necessarily going to be free uh you know free free subjects i've been watching a lot of handmaid's tale lately so i'm <laughs> keenly aware of the uh, fragile rights of women in such an environment but thankfully it does not end here mm-hmm. oh, thankfully not so we still get a friday minute yep and there's at least a few shots we get here at the end of the minute because we fade in at 49 seconds and it's the giga horse speeding along its way towards the Citadel. And I'm very thankful that we do not see the return of the buzzards because we just went through so much to get to this point. It was a huge ordeal. And I'm just going to go ahead and assume that all of the buzzards were killed in that initial interaction with the war boys and the war rig and everything like that because it's a very quiet drive. (laughs) from the canyon all the way back to the Citadel. Very uneventful outside of the Giga Horse. I do love the mirroring from the beginning of the movie. We saw them drive through the canyon. We saw them drive through the flats. And now we've reversed everything. It's obvious that they are going back the way they came. Mm -hmm. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, we are going to do a little bit of distance jumping, but we're still hitting each terrain. I appreciate that. It feels like there's continuity. 
yeah, we've already established how everything is laid out. We're just going through the motions of retracing these steps so that way we can finally get to that last destination that we've got our eye on. Mm -hmm. In the final shot, it's like the last second, we see that Jillian is driving, Toast and the Dag are sitting on the seat next to her, and Max is in the back there with Furiosa. We don't know exactly how she's doing. We're going to find that out right at the top of Friday's Minute. So we will be back then when Furiosa takes a turn for the worse, Max makes it easier for her to breathe, and Melita helpfully points out that Furiosa has lost a lot of blood. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 107 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.